Hello and welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me as my special guest, Dr. Adam Kehoe. Excited to be here. Thanks, and thanks for, for joining me so last minute. And uh, for the audience, of course, you've probably heard I've interviewed um, Adam a couple times already, and so always have a great time talking to him. But uh, we'll also be talking about some a discussion that we're having on Twitter this morning regarding kind of this big blow up about the big news that uh, apparently, you know, uh, James Fox and I kind of opened up a Pandora's box that went wild. But it's really interesting. And I think it's good for us to self-examine ourselves as a kind of a community and and look at what happened there. And I'll give you some updates about uh, this big news um, in just a little bit. And I shouldn't put quotes. It is big news. But like I've tried to temper your expectations, definitely big news for some. Some of you might be disappointed depending on your expectations. But um, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, a couple things. First of all, I wasn't able to do uh, really much in the way of shows this week because, of course, it's holiday. Uh, things are going crazy, or just kind of crazy. Uh, and, you know, I've got some, we've got some people here, not a lot. We've just got, you know, my girlfriend's girls in the house or just our little family unit. And probably like a lot of you, not really doing the big family thing because it's not safe to do. And what's interesting, I found, Adam, I don't know if you've seen this also, like the grocery stores. We went to the grocery store last night and it wasn't packed. Like it wasn't, you know, it's not the normal hustle and bustle at the stores. Yeah, I think everybody's hunkering down a little bit um, mm -hmm. for, for good reason. We're doing the same mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So just very in the year. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's why I've been wearing hats so much in the year. My hair just kind of goes crazy. Hard to get haircuts. I can get haircuts in Arizona, but California, um, once sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, depending on the the level of warning. Uh, what's interesting in California, though is that everybody's been going outside. So the businesses too, even nail salons and such, been moving their stuff outside. Oh, right. You're on the East Coast, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm in Boston. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a little chilly in yeah, most places a, to be able to do that. Yeah, What's funny is Aaron, in Arizona, it's been too hot to put stuff outside. So they haven't done that. Now they're doing it now that it's cooled down. But uh, yep, uh, regional differences. But- uh, other information. So uh, I wasn't able to get to an interview uh, this week, uh, you know, for the Rojas reports. However, I'm going to do two next week and I guess we'll get into this big news. So the big news that everybody's talking about um, and kind of mythologizing about in real time. Uh, you, yeah, in real time. Have you even heard much about what this actually is? Uh, yeah, I probably prefer not to say a whole lot. So I, I think okay. like a lot of people, you know, we're, there, there's a network of, of people who all work on this stuff. So, you know, elements of this, this story has been, has been around. Um, but I mean, this gets directly into the question of what you hear, uh, versus what you know and what you can prove. Um, so in this case, you know, the, the story kind of got out ahead of the reporting and the work that needs to be done to substantiate the story and, and to report it properly. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people, of course, I got news that there was big news on the horizon I, from James Fox, just like the rest of my audience when I interviewed him and he said that and then that kind of went crazy. But what's interesting is James didn't even know much in the way of details because I then did my thing to go figure out what it was to vet what it allegedly was going to be. And once I did. I contacted James and I was like, uh, you know, hey, looks like I found out what the story is about. And he's like, really? And he didn't even have the details, which is kind of interesting because based off of his simple statements, people really went crazy with, you know, disclosures around the corner. The world's going to change. That, that phrase was being used. World changing news coming up. And now that I do know what the news and I've kind of clued you guys in a little bit. Um, it's not really necessarily world changing. Um, it is interesting. I guess people are saying your audio is a little low. Is there yeah, any I way see that. I'm crank it up? Let's see if I can crank that up a little bit for, for people. Okay. Give me just a moment here. Yeah. 
So, and I guess I'll review that, but the news is coming from, and, and I can tell you this, I can tell you, of course, that uh, Tim McMillan is the guy writing the article um, that was revealed on the McLaughlin group. And I have been in contact with Tim lately, uh, but the McLaughlin group, I don't know if you guys watch this. It used to be the old guy. I forget his, his name, McLaughlin. I used to watch it all the time. Um, even though I have a hard time stomaching Pat Buchanan, but uh, regardless, interesting political show where they debate both sides. And uh, unfortunately, the host passed away, but the show show continues. Um, and at the end of the show, Tom Rogan, a conservative writer, he writes for Washington Examiner. He wrote a UFO story about Stephen Greer not too long ago, uh, essentially, you know, casting doubt on some of Greer's claims. But uh, he said at the end of the show, because they do predictions, that there'll be an interesting UFO story coming out from my friend Tim McMillan. So, uh, and he was referencing this story. Tim McMillan is working with MJ Benias and and um, Micah, uh, Micah Hanks. Hanks. Uh, of course, other friends of the show, good buddies, and they're creating this this uh, website called The Briefing. And I, I think I showed you guys this last week. And uh, that's what you want to keep an eye on. Um, and I don't know if they've revealed, I think they have from what I understand, and people are talking about it online, that it will be next week that that story's going to break. And you guys are lucky that you're fans of mine because I'm going to have on, uh, I'm going to do two interviews next week. I'm going to have on Tim McMillan and MJ Benias separately um, and to talk about all of this news, which should break by then. Um, which is going to be great. But what's interesting is a lot of these people kind of blowing up this story into the world changing. They don't even know what the news is. And that's what uh, we were talking about this morning, which is kind of interesting is where, and you can kind of explain this because I think that, you know, you found some, some studies that kind of explain what happened here, how people kind of conflate these stories, even without having information of details about the story. Sure, sure. So first, let me just make sure my my audio is a little bit better. So maybe the chat can let us know. I can try to crank it up a little more if not. Debrief. Yeah, it's it's uh, not the, the briefing, but the, the debrief is the name of uh, Tim's I'll bring uh, it up. outlet that he's putting together. So yeah, I mean, for, first, just on the facts. So I think what happened was a conflation of multiple things. So so Tim and MJ, I don't think it's any secret at this point, have, have been working on this project for some time. And um, essentially the announcement of the, the project itself, this new venue that they're going to be launching, uh, was hyped as being, well, this is going to be some you know massive event or whatever, which was just a complete misunderstanding. All it was meant to be was the announcement of the rollout. And then I think by, you know, by coincidence, um, uh, Tim has this other story that he's working on that, you know, that some people are excited about. And so the two got mixed together. Uh, and then we had the usual kind of relentless hyping and mythologizing in real time, as we were saying, um, start to happen. Um, and so that, that's kind of part of the, you know, the mess uh, that we're seeing at the moment. So um, mm -hmm. what I shared this morning was a, a paper uh, titled The Collaborative Construction and Evolution of Pseudo-Knowledge in Online Conversations, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a... Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic paper. Um, I think the the PI on that is out of Syracuse University, um, uh, Dr. Introne. It's well worth a read. So essentially what that paper does is it studies how um, subcultures, they get really uh, intensely interested in a topic, develop this kind of pseudo-knowledge. So it's an accumulation of stories and ideas and myths that kind of get woven together uh, over time by the people in that community. And one of the most interesting things about this paper is it, it elucidates the, the mechanisms uh, that go behind this. So there's different phases. There's parts of it of narrative building when people are telling uh, a story, um, essentially about whatever it is they're interested in, um, you know, about aliens or UFOs or whatever. But then there's also this kind of collaborative storytelling aspect of what the, the authors call stitching and mutating. So uh, as other people get interested in the topic, they bring their pet interests and they start to kind of attach it to that main narrative. So in, you know, in our context online, you'll have someone talking about, let's say the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee news, which is a real thing. Um, but then all of a sudden that kind of gets uh, some other element like um, uh, abductions or a conspiracy theory, whatever it may be, 
gets attached and it gets glommed on. And then over time, this process just mutates the original story into something, you know, quite, quite unrecognizable. Um, so I highly recommend people read that paper. It's, it's one of the most brilliant um, descriptions of this process. And, and we were talking just before the show started that, you know, this is not a phenomenon that's, that's unique to one community or two communities online. You know, this is something that you know, the entire world is grappling with. And, the, you know, the, the authors of the paper point that out, that, that misinformation is a global problem right now. So I think it's incumbent on anyone who's working in this field where we know there's a lot of rumor mongering and we know there's a lot of stuff out there to be really careful that we're not participating in that, that we're not enabling it. Um, one of the, the most chilling comments in the paper is a comment that attempts to actually inject real information, to actually uh, sweep out the bad information, can almost be like an incomplete dose of antibiotics, meaning it knocks down the silly stuff but then it can actually leave behind um, the parts of the narrative that are harder to debunk or harder to, to deal with squarely and actually makes the whole thing that much stronger. So I think that's, um, that's the problem a lot of journalists and researchers and, and others uh, find themselves in, uh, particularly with this topic. And, and we're seeing that on a daily, hourly basis uh, right now. And it's funny you did point this out and you talked about myself and MJ and Tim because they fall into the same category where we bring this information to the public or even tip them off on uh, something coming. So, for instance, on our show, we tipped off with James Fox that there's big news coming. Right. Um, so people love it. They run with it. Right. But then when I try to temper people's expectations or or say, no, you guys are running in the wrong direction this is more of the nature of of the information you're going to get then right. they attack me that right. you know i'm somehow suppressing the information even though i'm the one who brought it to him so the yeah. you kind of brought up how someone can be at, one time people are happy with the person bringing the information at the other time yeah. same people are attacking those people you're alternatively celebrated and reviled by, by the same group of people because when you've got something that appears to be good news or something that they can embroider you know, into whatever the narrative might be, then you're a hero and you're moving the ball forward. And there's any number of terms and phrases that, that we all hear very regularly associated with this. But then if you squash some part of that story that just isn't true, it's just not factually supported, well, then you're being a gatekeeper, an elitist, um, you know, whatever it is. So, you know, they're, they're always going to be paying attention because it's always potential new information to weave into that kind of narrative. Um, and you're just going to be either on the right side or the wrong side of it, depending on, on what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and another part of this, and, and I think it's in there, but you would know better is the group think part. Cause that's mm -hmm. what I think has been kind of the danger of UFO Twitter in that they feel like they're evolving their, the story, like they're, they're learning something together, but most of that is speculation. Or I think the paper calls it stitching. Um, yeah. and maybe you could speak to that where, the story is evolving together and they feel like they're in the know together when actually they're kind of mythologizing yeah. things they're together. Um, they're, they're not actually dealing with facts that they're discovering. It's just, right. they're adopting these non-facts. Right. Yeah. So in the, in the paper, I think the term that they use is um, uh, collective motivated reasoning, which is a great term. So mm -hmm. motivated reasoning is when, um, when we're thinking about something, so we're making arguments, but you're doing it in an emotional way, you know, like if you have a problem in your life that you kind of can't quite square yourself with. And so, you know, you, you don't entirely admit all the facts when you think about it. That's an example of motivated reasoning. And so this is kind of the community version of that when a bunch of people are doing it. And they point out that that often happens when people feel like they're in a position of being powerless um, or when they don't have a whole lot of agency in something. And so mm. there's this attempt to try to come to grips with whatever that thing is. And it turns into this, um, again, this community storytelling, participative uh, um, storytelling effort where everyone's just trying to make sense of it and adding on to their little thing. And there tends to be a small group of people, you know, that, that are in the center of that, that are kind of the master weavers. Um, and, and yeah, the, so the paper talks about sort of stitching and mutating. So stitching is when someone comes in with a pet interest of their own and they say, well, what about, you know, this theory or this idea? And then that gets woven into the narrative. And then when you have enough of that stitching process, you eventually get to the point of mutation where the, the whole narrative in of itself really changes, uh, completely. 
Um, and what they did to study this is they actually looked at something from kind of roughly the, the alien and UFO world. So they looked at ideas, um, an online community talking about this kind of Stargate theory. And they studied the posts of that over time. And they looked at how the ideas uh, and communication evolved. Um, and, and that's really how they extracted this, this kind of theory using other you know, existing academic frameworks that are out there to, to study this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so I, I think that is precisely what we're seeing is you know, people have a, a, a strong interest in this topic and they wanna know more about it. And oftentimes they feel like they don't have power to do so. And so in an attempt to make sense of it, we get this jungle um, that just kind of takes on a life of its own. Mm hmm. I think you have a really good point there. Or I love the phrasing to this collective motivation in that. Uh, and that's really, I guess, and the lack of agency. And I guess those are the two parts that I'm, I try to counter. In other words, um, don't be motivated by the group. And I think that's what happens if the UFO Twitter people feel like a community um, and then they discuss amongst each other and they, they have this kind of collective motivation that happens. Um, and it, it kind of seems innate in us to go that way, but you've just got to fight that. And uh, I would even say I'm influenced by this. I would admit to that. And I've got to reset myself and say, well, wait a second, just because all of these people believe something and it's my job as a journalist. Is that true? Let's right. follow this thread. Let's look for, let's substantiate these beliefs. And often we can't. Yeah. Lawrence Johnson says it's like mob rules. Exactly. And um, so I think we all kind of have to fight that feeling. Yeah. I mean, I think where things like this paper can really help is they can give us words and ideas to be able to spot this stuff when it's happening. So having um, a term like stitching or mutating or, or narrative or many, I mean, I'm, I'm not even really capturing all the richness that's in this paper. I think people, I really encourage people to go and read it. It's free online. Um, and I've got it up right here. I've got Adam's Twitter right okay. here, Dr. Adam Kehoe. And that's why I'm showing the screen because yeah. this is where he posted it and highlighted some of the so sections. I did a, yeah, I did a real quick pass through there. And I just tried to pull out some of the things that I really grabbed me and I thought other people might find interesting. But you should read, you know, read the whole thing. And, and what I, you know, try to do is when you're armed with that concept, when you're going into these communities or you're in these conversations, just be aware of, of what's going on. You know, when you see that kind of stitching happening um, and, uh, and kind of make your choices about, you know, how, how you're going to, um, how you're going to react to that. So, so something that I've been writing a, a little bit about lately, um, I had a piece kind of about the culture of UFOs, the culture of ufology writ large. And I did that through television. Um, but this is one of the central things that I wanted to kind of tackle is what happens when something that a lot of people have dreams or aspirations or big ideas about UFOs, aliens, whatever, collides with a very real story, um, a government story, for example, in the case of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, it, it goes into an uncomfortable place because I think some people feel that that exactly that collective um motivated reasoning where they want to defend the dream. They want to defend the part of it that's uh, um, uh, imaginative and hopeful. And that oftentimes comes at the expense of what the story really is. Um, and I said there that, you know, in journalism, I'm no journalist, but I've been, you know, been uh, an avid follower of the news for a long time. And I have yet to encounter a story, a real story um, that doesn't have a good, bad and an ugly side. And so often in the UFO world, there's a, there's a temptation to only tell the good part of the story, the part that affirms the dream and the hopes, and to leave aside the bad or the ugly, um, and maybe to not even deal with the things that, um, that invalidate an idea that just isn't true. So I think we're going to see this tension now. Um, and so I had a section there titled, you know, when dreams become the news. This is, this is the predictable consequence of that. Um, the other part is agency, and this is where I would really like your input, too, in that one of the things I've been arguing, and I guess this is kind of one of the things that frustrates me a little bit uh, about all of this, is that we do have right now more uh, ability and insight than we've ever had before in this field. So in other words, uh, we're not as helpless as we've been in the past where we were just being gaslighted by the government. Now we have an agency, the UAP task force that is, it exists that we can begin to harass to get information. We have uh, the Senate looking into this. So we have politicians. Um, now the topic is seen more credible and we have 
uh, more scientists uh, and and kind of more credible academic institutions or even the media discussing this topic. So uh, mm -hmm. people should feel less, um, um, you know, oh, hopeless or less. Uh, they should feel more empowered, I should say, I guess. I had someone I had a conversation about this with someone re relatively recently where they expressed a feeling of pain or having um, a chip on their shoulder for feeling like the topic had been denigrated for so long. And that even though now, mm. you know, there are journalists and scientists that are taking it seriously, there's still that pain of feeling like, well, I've been interested in this for 10, 20, you know, 30 years, whatever it is. Um, and I understand, like, I get that. I, I understand where that comes from. But at the same time, at a practical level, if your motivation is to know more about what's going on, to learn what the, the truth is, then I think, you know, you've got to lean into to science and to um, journalistic pursuits and all of these things. You, you may feel like you've been hurt by those institutions, but um, we are kind of where we find ourselves now. So I think what's not going to help is the collaborative storytelling, the, the rich tapestry of all these myths and things and in, insisting on pulling that into each and every narrative. Um, you know, quite candidly, I was very disappointed over the summer when we had, I think, a real story in the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee um, break. And very quickly, there's another kind of hype cycle got going and then other things got brought in. And it was a classic example of stitch and, you know, stitching and mutation. And the narrative changed into to something else entirely that that's less grounded. And frankly, I'll tell you that like a problem that I have, um, again, I'm a blogger, I'm, I'm no journalist, but I, I'm increasingly trying to get comment from people. So imagine if I'm trying to write to someone in the Senate or a press officer in the government somewhere, you know, I have to be able to ask these things in a way where I'm going to be able to get, you know, a credible answer. So, you know, you have to be able to have a, a, just a more grounded approach to this sort of thing. Um, and deal with the evidence as you find it. You know, you can't launch off into whatever you might want to be the case. Mm -hmm. And a, a great point to that is that there's still this narrative uh, amongst, you know, these online groups that there's this is all part of this major disclosure um, when there's zero evidence of that. And what I get frustrated about with that is that it it dismisses the real story, which mm -hmm. is why I've written about Tom DeLong and Louise Elizondo and their personal stories regarding of this and Chris Mellon, because mm -hmm. these are the people among others like like Dr. Hal Putoff and Dr. Eric Davis. These are the people who have fought for decades to get this information out, have done so really overall in a very intelligent um, legitimate, legitimate manner in which, you know, they've got government experience or government insiders to get this information out. That's, thank God they didn't feel like they weren't empowered to do this. And they just, you know, did the hard work, took the hits to their credibility or, or perhaps reputations to struggle to get this information to light. And it's their hard efforts that have really gotten us to the point that we're at. Right. And I think it's important to point out, I mean, I think about that um, Stars and Stripes podcast recently with James Fox and, and Mellon, and they specifically say that the disclosure concept is not helpful. I mean, Fox says quite clearly that he doesn't doesn't like the term um, because it has this kind of baggage, because it presupposes an awful lot that there's some sort of um, complete set of information that can just be dropped in the lap of, of people. And it doesn't really uh, provide for the possibility that while the government certainly knows more than we do because they have access to video and sensors and things like that, they don't necessarily know that much more um, than the public does, which is that these, you know, strange things happen um, and there isn't a great explanation for them. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the thing that's tough with disclosure and why disclosure is a, is a sticky concept is because it's amorphous. It can mean different things to different people. And because it gives you something that has that kind of like bumper sticker quality where you can, you know, you can put it out there, you can yell, you know, I want, I want disclosure, but it glosses over all of this complexity, um, all of this intense complexity, because the reality is this isn't the kind of story that you can handle in a bumper sticker or a slogan. You know, you have to be able to deal with the full nuance of it, um, mm -hmm. I think. So you know, it's, it's not someone like me who's saying, oh, you know, the disclosure concept isn't helpful. It's people like James Fox and Chris Mellon who, you know, ought to know a thing or two 
um, both about telling stories in this space and in, 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 the, in the case of Fox and about trying to pressure, you know, the government to, to deal with it more, more honestly in the case of Mellon. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, Louise says, uh, from unidentified celebrity review, I think he has a good point in that he says, you know, the people that do what we're talking about are the minority. And I think he's right. I think like, for instance, I don't hear from the vast majority of my listeners. And for those who comment rarely, you know, they are on the same page as, as, as you and I, for example. However, those who use the hashtag UFO Twitter are definitely, I think that's where all of this that we're discussing happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of, and, and I would just say, cause I know a lot of people who consider themselves UFO Twitter, many probably are even listening, many, you know, some of you might be here live in the chat. It's just, you know, it's a warning to be careful about this information and, and how this happens. For instance, you know, um, when James said there's big news coming, all of a sudden it rose to the level of world changing news. Right. And I completely disagree that this news that's coming is world changing. It's, it's interesting um, in the context of, especially of the Senate intelligence committee and, and mm. how intelligence feels about this topic, but um, certainly not world changing. And that's the sort of, dangerous thing we have to be careful of because just by invoking that phrase, what mm. comes to mind then? Some extraordinary revelations. Well, and, and inevitably it creates a really um, a hostile or deflated, maybe is a better word, environment for the story when it breaks. So when mm, the story comes right. out, it might be a really good story. I mean, and I think in this case it is, but then people feel like, well, I was promised, you know, I was hyped up as this other thing, which no story is really ever going to live up to. And so inevitably people feel like, ah, that's all there was to it. And eh, we'll just kind of go on. And it, it, it's, it's tragic because when you watch people like Tim and, and many others in this community who do really hard work, that's that, like not easy work to do um, and put so much into it and, you know, all of that. And then it just all kind of unravels into nothingness just because of perception. It's, it's sad. I mean, it's understandable. I understand why that happens, but it's just, it's sad to see it happen. You know, reflecting upon the New York Times article uh, where this happened, uh, same thing with UFO Twitter. Oh, the big news, you know, that uh, Admiral Wilson or whatever knows about aliens and has said he tried to look for the information and all of this stuff. And it's going to be finally revealed in the New York Times and they're going to prove all of this was real. And none of that happened. Right. But what is weird, I feel weird because at the one hand, I'm kind of saying that's not going to happen. And I'm saying, and I'm, and I feel myself in the same position. I'm trying to say the news isn't that big, but at mm -hmm. the same time, what did come out of that article for me personally was a big deal. So sure. in other words, it's a big deal because, you know, there was no revelations like that. Eric Davis uh, essentially shared some rumors that he heard there was projects with, uh, um, you know, crashed, objects or, or craft, um, certainly not what the UFO Twitter said, but then again, you know, at least that information was introduced in some briefings and, you know, which is interesting. Um, I'm still skeptical of the idea. And it is interesting that in his community of, of scientists that work on SAP projects are this buzz is going on. That is definitely interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's an interesting story. And then here I am trying to poo poo it, but at the same time, I'm trying to build it up and it's, and it's kind of the same, it, it just makes things really awkward. This is another and level of complexity where it's not just UFO Twitter or Facebook or whatever that is prone to communities of pseudo knowledge. Scientists have this too. Journalists have this too. It's like you said that sometimes even as you're trying to cover things, you know, that kind of social proof aspect of what everyone is talking about can take over and kind of, and kind of place a mind tricks on you. That happens to highly trained people in all kinds of different disciplines. I mean, there's, you know, countless examples of that. So, you know, when we're talking about things like rumors about, you know, um, crashed items or objects or, you know, all of that stuff, like, yeah, you have to take that seriously. You have to run it down. Like, I think Chris Mellon has, has, has had the right approach on this of like, you take it seriously, you look into it like you do everything else, but you don't run, don't let it run away. You know, don't let your imagination run away with it where you are then just in a different type of pseudo knowledge community 
where you're doing the same stitching and, um, and mutating process, um, you know, that other communities maybe do in a more <laughs> flamboyant way, let's say, um, more obvious way. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess my, my underlying point is, is that as, as researchers or journalists covering this, we have to realize that even highly credentialed people can succumb to these kinds of processes. And we have to make sure we're double and triple checking all of the homework. Mm -hmm. Someone said, uh, let's see. Um, <clears throat> if you've seen a UFO up close, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and I think that that's a, I guess I'll say that's a, a valid point for you to have, but I sure. guess, uh, to clarify though, our interest in what, uh, this upcoming news I think will affect and the New York times affected. And what's interesting about all of this is how the government and the mainstream is dealing with this topic now. And I think that's what you and I are definitely honed in on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why these issues that are coming up that have a large effect on that are the things that really fascinate people like you and I and James Fox and Chris Mellon. And so those are the things we consider big news. And, and that's what I've tried to explain to people. That's why, you know, what I just explained, that New York Times article, there was some big news in it. Big news for those of us who are looking at it from that aspect. For those of you who are looking for confirmation of, you know, uh, Roswell or an alien in the hangar, that that news that interests us will probably not be as interesting to you. So um, that's why you do. And, and, and it's kind of like UFO Twitter uh, in this evolution that we're talking about uh, uh, that happens. They're turning these stories that wouldn't interest a lot of them into stories that would interest them. Yes. But then when the reality comes, right, it's not what they thought. So something I, I definitely see happening a lot is a blending of like normal national security um, and intelligence community stuff with UFO community stuff. So for example, like a lot of opining about, uh, oh, is Angus King going to be the next DNI and what does that mean? And, you know, what does his background have to say? And th there, that's, this is another one of those gray zone things where there's like, there's a lot of legitimate questions uh, behind that. But in a way, it's starting to weave together uh, where, where it goes astray is when people start saying, well, he's going to have this position on UFOs. And so he was selected to be the next DNI. And then so often the case with the Angus thing King in particular, you know, someone else was nominated in the end. And, and most people who were talking about this were saying, you know, Chuck Schumer isn't really going to be particularly on board with this because it's going to alter the Senate composition, et cetera, et cetera. So the that 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 is just a whole other layer of this where um the other example i think the other day is, is some reporting on the national defense authorization act and people saying well if this is vetoed then it's going to be a veto for disclosure and it's going to stop you know the disclosure process this is trump vetoing disclosure no not not on any level there's zero evidence that this has anything to do with uap or ufos it's also factually wrong in the sense that a veto could not stop a Senate committee from exercising proper oversight. It's it's not how any of this works. <laughs> um, you know, and there's there's others like I, on, on Twitter, I think of someone like Doug Johnson who can explain this very lucidly, the exact mechanics of this kind of thing. But again, this is the imagination running away from us. The NDAA is not about UFOs, you know? Um, and, it, and it's hard because other communities that might intersect with the UFO community, they're gonna say, you're making this about UFOs and that's nuts. Um, you know, it's just not recognizable. We're not inhabiting the same reality anymore. Yeah. And, you know, and this was a mainstream journalist at Popular Mechanics who wrote this article. So even they can get confused. And you'll notice I don't tackle that so much. I refer people to look at Doug Johnson's tweets and I share those because it's so nuanced and it, it's so complicated. And an example that even if Trump does veto that bill, it may slow some things down or it may not. It may take out some of the oomph. I guess that the request had, but the request that the Senate committee made for that UAP investigation is already being acted upon. Uh, the, the very creation of the UAP task force is a response to that request to right. centralize things. So that's already happening. There's already movement by those intelligence communities to answer those questions before the bills even getting passed. Yeah, and in here, I mean, congressional experts can can talk in, in more in more detail about some of these things. But this is essentially not legislative action. This is essentially um, 
a, a Senate committee in this instance exercising oversight where there's a problem that has not apparently been properly dealt with or reported. There's a concern about it. And so they're making a clear voiced request to understand more about what that particular problem is with a couple of suggestions about how to go about doing it. In this case, the director of national intelligence working, working with the secretary of defense and whoever else is kind of appropriate for that to put together this report. So that's not something that a president can veto. That's not, not the way that the constitution works. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so do not lose heart, but, uh, I did post that article cause I think it was, I, I thought it was interesting that Popular Mechanics was going there. And of course, who MJ and Tim, who we've talked about earlier, I know MJ and I think Tim have written for that outlet. Oh, so yeah. um, I was like, uh-oh, is this from them? And it wasn't. It was from one of their other reporters. So it wasn't a UFO community generated uh, article. True. Um, so what, true. But that's really interesting that even the mainstream can get it wrong when it comes to this. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there, it's, it's not just, you know, UFO Twitter that's interested in uh, catchy titles and clickbait and, you know, and the rest of it. There, I mean, if you pop your head out of this community and look at the wider world, everyone is talking about this problem of clickbait and the attention-based economy that we live in where, you know, where everyone is just incredibly hungry, you know, for people's attention to, to, to look at their particular story for, for ads or for whatever else. Um, so yeah, I mean, as consumers of the news and just as citizens, as people, you have to be aware of that, um, and kind of know when that story is a little too good to be true or a little more, more exciting than it should be, which I always find flummoxing because it's like so many of these stories are fascinating as exciting enough as they are. Like the facts are actually really compelling and pretty out there. So I, I agree. Really understand the, the compulsion to like add the the frosting of untruth on top of what's already of, you know, it's like, I'm speechless trying to find a way to characterize the Senate intelligence committee taking, you know, de essentially demanding a report on this kind of thing. I mean, that, that should have been enough. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I will say, cause someone's pointing out another article about that uh, Dirk, uh, who is in here often is pointing out an article popular mechanics got wrong in the past about area 51. And I will say this, you guys know that I write for den of geek and in a lot of these, um, you know, pressers that I go to, uh, I mingle with other people, space.com popular mechanics. I get paid more for articles at den of geek than the popular mechanics. People get paid for their articles. So unfortunately in the way the media is working right now, it, it that's just kind of how it works. So uh, if you're wondering, why do I write for Den of Geek? That's one of the reasons. Plus they're really cool and they really love the topic and the, the articles and stuff. So um, that kind of has an effect as well. But I want to ask another question, um, I guess to wrap this up too, or at least to kind of put a lid on it for people who have questions about the information that's out there about this story, uh, the big news story. There's a lot out there. Um, you can get kind of a gist out there, uh, something related to a photo. Um, I, I will say that, you know, people saying the government's going to release some kind of UFO photo type of thing is off the mark. Um, and people have asked, well, where can I get information about what the real story is? Read the real story when it yeah, comes I out. Say, I was going to say, real talk, you can't get that story yet because it's not written. Exactly. Like the, guy who, the guy who's writing it isn't done writing it. Yeah. And it's not real until it's out and until he's able to, to source, to, to do the work that, that a journalist does um, to convert a fascinating thing that you heard into something that the public should pay attention to. Right now, to be perfectly honest with you, it's not something that the public should pay attention to because it's just a story. Exactly. That is a really great point that it's not something people should pay attention to. Uh, what you could pay attention to and be wise is uh, this: pay attention to this website. This is the website, thedebrief.org. Uh, keep an eye on this website. Like it says, it's launching on the 30th. Um, also... The people writing and releasing the story, uh, MJ, who's the editor of The Debrief, and uh, Tim, who's the writer of the article, I'll have them on next week, soon after they release that article, and we'll be able to talk to them yeah. in, in detail about it. 
And that's going to be the time for everyone to take a look at it and to see what it is and see how consequential it is and, and, and try to, you know, hopefully evaluate it on the, on the merits of what it is. And then, you know, then maybe a lot of excitement will be warranted or, you know, maybe not so much. We'll, we'll see, right. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the work is. Somebody mentioned in here too. um, It's not anything if it's unconfirmed. And that is a really great point, Shawnee. And really, I don't even know what is confirmed or unconfirmed and I won't know until this story comes out. So that's why I'm even hesitant to really speak to it too much because I don't know what is substantial and what is not. And I won't know who the witnesses are, who the sources are until this article comes out. So we've got to just be patient and wait for the article. So someone had a question earlier, which I think will elicit an interesting response. You said you hadn't read a story that didn't have a good buy back good guy, bad guy type of, uh, angle. Yeah. Let me just say not, not good guy, bad guy, but a good, bad and ugly. Okay. Meaning, meaning that, meaning that every, every, you know, truly meaningful story, you know, there, there's a part of it that's going to be, well, when you're, you know, this as a journalist, when you're talking to sources, when they've got something good to tell you, something that they're proud of, that story comes easily because they'll just tell you because they want that to be in the news. The part that's a little bit, difficult, you know, either because it's bad or it's ugly, that's the part a journalist has to go or a researcher has to go digging for to find out the little bits, you know, the things that take the shine off the story a little bit once, once you kind of know all the facts, that's really what I meant by that. Um, is that, you know, the, the, the meaningful stories are, are usually a little hard to tell and a, a little hard to get. So he was asking when you looking at the Fravor coverage, what's the bad? <laughs> that takes some analysis. Um, I could. So, I mean, okay. The way that you could look at that is that you have people, you have military witnesses involved in that incident who tell different stories. That that's the part of it that's com- complicated. So everyone will want to say, and, and here's the thing, like I, I'm not a, um, um, I haven't worked, I've worked with some of those witnesses a teeny tiny bit, but I haven't worked with them so extensively that I'm going to tell you, I know what the, the full story is there. But I know that if I were to start covering that story, that would be the thing I would be looking for is, you know, what do people say? Where, where are their differences in their their positions? Are they are they credible differences? You know, when someone says Fravor got this part of the story wrong, do they have a good reason for saying that? And, and is there any evidence to back it up? So the, the lazy well, the lazy way to tell that story is um, this perfect human being of a pilot um, knows everything that he saw and we should take it completely um, you know, as it's been, been handed to us. No, of course we should give him all the respect that he's earned as a, as an extremely experienced, you know, uh, naval aviator. So you have to take the testimony incredibly seriously. You can't take that away from him, but you can't then turn it into hero worship or just, just purely transcribing what a person says. You have to go then dig into the rest of the story, especially when there are differences. Mm-hmm. You've got to vet it all, which is difficult. Yeah. And people have criticized the Scientific Coalition for UAP uh, research uh, because they've written an analysis along with Dr. Kevin Knuth. You know, Robert Powell and Peter Reale wrote it, and they uh, estimated speeds and things like this. And they're like, people are asking, well, how can you scientifically do that if we don't have the data? All we have is witness reports. And they do address that, and it's a valid point. Um, and they are using witness testimony, but they're using multiple witnesses and they are estimating how wrong could these guys be? And, yeah. uh, and they, they put that. So it is estimations. These are estimations. Yeah, it's, it's not it's for sure. It's, it's a, if I understand and um, what they're doing in the paper, I mean, they're using this kind of Bayesian framework to try to come up with um, essentially bounds of what, what kind of neighborhood would this thing be in based on the testimony that they have available. And yeah, we should definitely treat that as, as estimates that's useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it can help kind of put a little bit more specificity on things. This is a common problem in science communication as you probably have experienced as well is that people's minds go a little funny around numbers. So, or on estimates. So when they see a number that's been predicted, people think it's like an Oracle of like, Oh, it's going to be exactly that thing. And not realizing that there's usually complex statistics involved and you're going to have a confidence interval around whatever that particular number is. And it's the same thing here. You know, they're, they're not, I don't, to, to my eye, at least reading the paper, it didn't seem like they were claiming to have cracked any grand code. They're just trying to say, okay, what ballpark is this in? Yep, exactly. Which is useful and has been useful. And that report has 
gotten all over the place. It's been heavily used, which is great because we don't have these sort of estimations from the Navy. The Navy is, and and I I keep repeating this, is that the Navy are the ones who are claiming this to be unidentified beyond the technology of Russia or China or ourselves, but they haven't substantiated that claim yet. Hopefully they will one day, but who knows? Um, And I would say that, you know, this is another area where we, this is where we need to focus because the DOD has been very clear. And in fact, even Brian Bender, you might have seen, posted this fairly recently that the DOD told him, we're not sharing anything from the UAP task force. What they do is classified. The results of their findings are classified. So sorry, Mr. Bender from Politico, we're not even sharing anything with you. So, but that doesn't mean it's the end all be all. We all have I'm, to be able to- mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with that response because I too have asked them questions. Mm-hmm. And the questions that I asked, frankly, were not, um, I'm interested in the government part of this. So the question that I was answering or I was asking rather was um, about policy and the kind of mechanics of how you deal with certain kinds of information. It was nothing that would be a detail like about how a system works or, you know, what ship was where. And I got exactly like literally exactly the same response that Brian did. So um, and I mean, I'm a small guy and, you know, Brian has got a lot of credibility and has been doing this for a while. So I think I think everyone it just tells you that on the spectrum that bloggers and and, you know, established journalists are like are getting the same kind of non answer at this point. Right, right. So but and and that's what we're doing at ICU and we'll be doing more of that, probably even more publicly. So keep an eye out for it. Uh, But uh, and that we all should be doing is just because they say they don't want to share anything doesn't mean that they won't be. Uh, for instance, the Senate has already told them or asked them to share stuff publicly. So there will likely be something coming out. And of course, we as the public can also request that of them and of our senators to make sure that they you know, continue to get information. From what I understand, that's where Mellon's focus right now is, is to make sure that they share uh, the information that they should be sharing, which is great that we have an insider like that. But we can also do that to yeah. ask them, hey, we need info. How much comes out very much depends on what the appetite is to pursue this. So, you know, if we have a um, reasonable, grounded, useful, productive, whatever other term you want to use, conversation in, in the media um, and just in society about what's going on, that those senators can turn to and be um, and, and learn something about the topic that is going to increase the odds that, that something real happens. If we go down the road of rumors and gossip and all the rest of it, then it's going to look like the same thing that it's looked like for a long time. It's going to look like a carnival that no one's going to want to touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, this may seem like a cynical thing to say, but it's an honest thing to say. We should be trying to reduce the amount of political courage required to tackle this. And the best way to do that is to be level-headed about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and it obviously has the biggest effect. So, and I, I will say this, and I don't think I'm revealing too much by saying this. In fact, I've already said it, is that that's what's interesting about this story coming out. In fact, uh, is that the story coming out, the most interesting part is the effect it has uh, on the uh, government and intelligence community. And uh, that's what I'm going to be really fascinated about with this article, because I think uh, that's the gist of the article, really, to me. Mm-hmm. It's not about disclosure of aliens or or anything like that. It's about how the intelligence community is handling this and what has been influencing them in the background. Well, what, what you want is a story that has legs so that you can go and then ask Senator so-and-so, you know, did you, did you get the briefing or whatever, you know, whatever it happens to be that, that this is, that this is. And then you've got another story, right? Because they, hopefully, you know, someone's going to have some comment. We have seen that with Marco Rubio actually answer some questions from, from journalists about this, at least a little bit. So, you know, that's what I think people who are actually working on researching or covering this, you know, that's what we're all looking for is what's the next story going to be? You know, what story should we be covering? So there's somebody who asked me to ask a question of you. I'm going to have to move my camera to read it. (laughs) It says, please ask Dr. Adam Kehoe to reflect upon what he sees as the most significant uh, geopolitical implication of the more UFO transparency worldwide, more cooperation or more co- competition between states. 
uh, impact on world religions like Christianity and Islam, new global social movements? Wow. Wow. That is fantastic question. First of all, it's a big question. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to be able, because there's multiple wings to that. That's that question is a mansion with, with wings in it <laughs> that we could go into in terms of like the religious and social aspects of things versus the, the diplomatic side of things. So the real answer is that we don't have enough information yet. I think to, to really be able to answer it. There aren't, there aren't enough in, um, indicators. Um, so, and that's part of the problem. Right. Because if we do have more information coming out, you know, let's say Tim does have some great story and there's going to be a bunch of new information and then the world has to kind of recalculate. Well, the problem is, you know, no one in the State Department or um, foreign ministries around the world has really been seriously thinking about this and thinking about that question that, that was just asked. And so everyone's going to be suddenly kind of figuring it out if, if there's a big, uh, big change in the environment. So that's a little bit of a worry because when you have to suddenly, you know, figure out an answer to something is when things can get a, a little bit screwy. Um, I think the, the biggest preview we have into that was probably the thing with Japan uh, over the summer where the um, uh, defense minister there asked our then Secretary of Defense, Esper, a question about um, our UAP policy um, and was saying to the Japanese public of like, you know, we, we see the Department of Defense releasing these videos, but we don't have a policy of our own. We need to come up with one. So we are starting to see this question raised of like, what is the foreign policy? This is going to sound kind of out there, but like, what is the foreign policy of the United States with respect to UAP? Like that question has actually been asked. It's just that nobody's really particularly paid attention to it because it was exactly one of those stories that people think is like, oh, interesting, but kind of boring. Um, so, I mean, fantastic question. I, th th this is exactly the question that I think many of us are, are like paying attention to and eager to report when we find out more. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I spoke to um, Lou Elizondo recently about this question, specifically about Japan, um, because I said, from those of us on the outside, we were wondering, what does that meaning mean? You know, like, did, was there really this question on the part of the Japanese government? Um, and his take on it was, there are so many ways for government officials to be able to talk to each other that a public question like that is actually messaging of a kind. It's a way to show that the governments are interested in cooperating with one another. Um, you know, it, a question like that wouldn't be asked if the answer wasn't already known to some, some extent. Interesting. So, so that, that, that's a comment from a, from a, you know, from a former, uh, a former official who, who works in this realm. I mean, he didn't, he did not emphatically, he did not say that is what's going on, but he said based on his, you know, experience and, and so on. Well, I would say there's something to that. I think he's making a really good point. But I wonder then, because I feel like the statement they made along with that, which is we haven't had any UAP encounters here in Japan, that feels pretty dubious to me. I mean, I've never, uh, covering this, I even do a lecture on governments and UFOs. I've never heard a government say that. Oh, that they've never had a, uh, they've never had an incident. Right. Yeah. I mean, so the, the thing that's a little different with a Japanese context is they get they scramble jets, you know, thousand plus times a year, like literally in terms of um, attempted incursions from mostly China and I think Russia secondarily. Um, and then, um, you know, in the 90s, there was the threat of North Korean um, missiles going overhead, the type of Dong uh, missile scare. So unknown things in the sky has like a as a different valence in Japan than maybe it does in some other parts of the world. So that may be part of why the government feels a little bit more uh, pressure to say that they they absolutely know everything that's in their airspace because it could mm. open up a bunch of other questions. It's just a different context that maybe, and also just the Japanese style of bureaucracy and politics is also different. So that, that may ha also have a, an impact. But this is the kind of stuff that we can research and we can ask people about, and that mm -hmm. we should, you know. Um, right, exactly. Uh, there was another question here. Oh, I see. Louise, he says, Adam, in your opinion, the release of all this data, who does it serve the most? And I know where he's going, but uh, the release of the data, I think what he means is this, this recent, uh, you know, revelation, these revelations like the Nimitz case and all of this, uh, the, the, the UAP task force. Who does the revelation of this information serve? Uh, well, that, that's, I mean, that's, 
that's tough to answer in a way. I mean, I think it serves, this is complicated in the sense that like the way that classification law is written literally is to try to be as transparent as it can. Everyone has a perception that everything, you know, that can be secret is secret somehow. It's actually the opposite. Like there, there is a desire to be transparent and there's good reasons for that. And so I think that the reason that it's been brought out is that people like Elizondo and people like Mellon saw a problem uh, that was not being properly addressed because it's, it's sticky. Like what bureaucrat, what administrator wants to take this thing on? It's, it, it, it's potentially damaging to your career. So I think the information came out because they made a, a glorious stink about it. You know, I mean, Elizondo resigned in protest over the right. policy and then went to the public and sort of has been, you know, ringing the bell that there's an issue here. So, and it came out as a result of that. And, and again, like if, if this isn't just a UFO thing, like officials do this in other domains too, where they resign and they make a stink and they force, you know, parts of our, our democracy to deal with it. So I, I, that is the framework that I see this in. I think you're exactly right. So my answer, because I get this question too, uh, and it typically it's like, well, why now? Who does this release of information serve? And they're the reason they're asking the question because the, they're assuming that once we figure out, you know, who it serves, you know, the CIA, for instance, does it serve them? Then they're the ones who are probably the masterminds behind the release of this information. But my answer would be, no, who does this serve? It serves the public. Um, and because of that, which is kind of what you just outlined, that right there is a demonstration that this isn't the type of conspiracy people are thinking it is. This information serves the public. Uh, who are the masterminds behind releasing the information? people in the public citizens uh, who are former military mm. insiders or intelligence insiders like Mellon and Elizondo, like you just mentioned, they're the ones who got the information out. It serves so, us. I've been working on this, on this piece where I've really wanted to try to get outside the American context and outside of our kind of Anglophone bubble and see how this issue has been dealt with around the world. And the common pattern that I see is that many, uh, many governments have had programs to look at this. They're almost always small. You know, they're like fewer than 10 people. Sometimes they're fewer than five people. Um, and usually those programs go through some sort of frustration. Like uh, this is going to be in something I'm writing up soon. But um, France has had a long standing interest in this, a government, a state interest in this. And in, I want to say, 1982, someone at the, at the kind of uh, French ATIP, if you will, actually wrote a letter to the Soviet Union saying, you know, what do you know about this? Can we cooperate? Can we have some sort of agreement? And I've been trying to find out because from what, what I understand from, from someone who's very familiar with that context is that director took it on his own wherewithal to write the letter. It wasn't that the France, uh, the state of France was interested in a bilateral relationship with the Soviet Union. This individual was trying to find something out, was frustrated, and then did this outreach on his own. Um, coincidentally, he was forced to resign in 1983, shortly thereafter. So there's a common pattern. I mean, if you think about it, you can see it in, in Elizondo, you can see it in Nick Pope, um, you can see it in, uh, in that French official of people working in small programs trying to understand this, not getting anywhere, getting frustrated, and then leaving uh, and, and kind of making us think about it once they're back in, in private life. Mm -hmm. uh, Louise asks... Uh but what does the Navy had have to gain by the release of all this? Not much and maybe nothing. And I think that's a really important point is that the Navy isn't, I think there's kind of a, a misconception. The Navy hasn't really released much. They have said that they take UAP seriously, that they have rolled out new um, procedures or policies around reporting UAPs to kind of make it okay. But that's about the extent. I would also argue that it is significant that they allowed those uh, two pilots from the Roosevelt to be on um, unidentified because you do have to get permission for active military to be on television. So they did allow that, but they've lately essentially shut down. They've been part of this course of, of people who have told like you, all of our findings and our research are, are classified and we're not sharing anything else. So the Navy is kind of shut down. Uh, Nick Pope uh, or Brian Bender actually had a really I think important observation too, from his perspective is that the Navy is uh, more savvy around PR 
So what they did early on was get in front of this story to make sure that they looked good, for example, you know, to make sure that they were appearing to be as open and to the public as possible. And I think they succeeded in that. And that was a wise move on their part, where if you've pointed out, we haven't heard anything from the Air Force. Um, so I think that's where the Navy's um, um, intentions. Shawnee says Navy under duress. And I think they are somewhat under duress right now and that they don't want to release information. Uh, they, they've kind of done everything they're going to do. Um, but hopefully well, we can afford I'm sure what they I'm sure what they want to do is figure out the problem and the limitation that they have is that you can't easily share a lot of this data because it's entangled mm. with you know class rightly classified sensor systems right and sometimes the details of these things too like if you're trying to say when a particular event happened well the place that it happened might be sensitive um, some of these things and when we're talking about you know um, particularly in the naval context you know USOs um, uh, submersible, unidentified submersible objects rather well you know, anything to do with a submarine is going to be intensely classified for very good reason because it either deals with the strategic triad meaning nuclear weapons or it deals with some things related to espionage so the navy can't just you know open the kimono completely on something like that but at the same time you know yeah it, it, these these weird things keep happening we know that they've caused safety problems surely they, they want to figure it out. So that's the, t the tension that they're in. How do you solve mm -hmm. a scientific problem without releasing secrets that could hurt the national defense? And even though I've said they've been secretive and they're not revealing much more, I, I really do appreciate what they've done thus far. You know, it was really uh, actually kind of a touching moment when at the UFO Congress, uh, we I interviewed Kevin Day, one of the witnesses, and to see how important it was that the Navy had their back you know, and didn't kind of poo-poo their sightings like we've seen in the past and stood up and said, these guys saw what they saw. We agree with them. This was unusual. Um, it meant a lot to those guys. And that was that was pretty cool, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this will be our last question and we'll wrap it up. But I think this is a great question. John had a question. John Lind. Um, hopefully I said that correctly and thank you for being a subscriber. Everybody click that join now button down here and you can subscribe also to the Rojas reports. But John says, curious if, uh, Chris Mellon has any pre-existing relationship with the incoming director of intelligence, Avril Haynes, or will have greater access to the executive branch appointees as a fellow Democrat. Um, in the specific of, of the, uh, of the DNI nominee, I have no idea. I just, I just don't know. Um, in terms of, will he have more access as a, as a Democrat? Yeah, potentially. Sure. Uh, John Lindy, he says, is, and I, and I do think that's an interesting question because of course he, he worked for, uh, the Senate intelligence committee under a democratic, well, actually he worked under a democratic and Republican. Yeah. He's, he's um, truly administration. had bipartisan. Yeah, he, he, he's truly a bipartisan figure. I mean, I, I don't think of him as a, you know, as, as being a, a democratic, you know, um, person. I mean, he's committed to, to, to national defense and that that is properly like a bipartisan thing in this country. So it's also fascinating that he says, you know, he did have a, a it seems like a closer relationship with uh, William Cohen, um, Clinton's um, what secretary of defense. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting about that is it was Cohen who first told him to go look into UFOs. Um, he revealed that, I think, in the Phenomenon documentary. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. So that is pretty interesting. And what was the context of that? Do you remember? Um, um, it might have been the Roswell. So I, I believe it may have been astronaut. Oh, Mitchell. it was Gordon Cooper. Or, yeah, yeah. So I think there, it was both, but yeah. Yeah, there, I think it was the former astronauts who had some stories. I think one of the things was a supposed uh, videotape of, um, you know, landing or something like that. And and Mellon was tasked with finding out if that was actually true. Right, um, right. But if people want to know more about that story, they should go and watch um, Phenomenon, I guess. I think that's where that, that story is kind of told in full. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you so much for being on the show. This is great. Of course, like I said, keep an eye on the debriefing um, dot org. And I put the link in the chat and I'll put the link in the sh show notes below for those of you who are listening on the podcast. Um, also, you can visit Adam uh, at his work and I forget the URL. Sorry. Strategic doubt dot com. 
uh, or uh, blog.adamkehoe.com. Either one will, will get you where you need to go. And Dr. Adam Kehoe, spelled K-E-H-O-E, not like Donald Kehoe. Uh, yeah. But uh, so follow that, and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. So thank you very much. And for all of you listening, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. This was our special Thanksgiving show. And uh, you too, Adam, have a good one. Yep, you Every- too. Everybody stay safe. And until next time, adios, muchachos.